Our patterns of behavior are determined by our deeply held beliefs. That may sound kind of technical at first, but it's really a simple and straightforward truth. Our patterns of behavior are determined by our deeply held beliefs, meaning that whatever beliefs are internal to us and at our core, whatever we hold on to as our deeply held convictions, those will determine what we do. Right? That's an obvious truth, maybe not necessarily profound in and of itself, but it is true. What we think and what we believe at our core determines what we do. So that includes our patterns of health. If we, in our core, know that exercise is good for us and leads to health and happiness, we will get up early and do it or find the time. But if we don't believe it strong enough, we won't, right? Depending on how convicted we are about exercise, that'll determine the the regularity with which we engage in it. So you're already convicted, I know. Or if we have a deeply held conviction that sleep is essential, then we'll go to bed on time. And many of us, myself included, have hard with that conv- or hard time with that conviction. I need to believe that more in my soul that sleep is necessary. If we believe in our core that having a pet is worth it, then we'll have a dog. But if you're like others in my home who don't share that core conviction, then you won't find all the challenges of a pet worth it. There's a direct link between how we act and what we believe. And that is true for individuals. It's true for communities. It's true for a group of people that their shared convictions and what they believe and hold to in their hearts, that will determine their regular patterns of behavior. And that was true in the early church, right? And what I want to argue with you here at the start is that their patterns of behavior and what they did together were determined by their core beliefs, what they held to be true. And in fact, I think that's implied by by the way Luke includes this section of Scripture in the book of Acts. Where does he place it? It's right following Peter's sermon. So here in Acts 2, we have... Pentecost, and the Spirit comes down and gives renewal and rebirth to the people of God. The Spirit comes in power, is evidenced in tongues, and people hear the truth of Jesus Christ in their own languages. And then Peter stands up and he gives a sermon explaining what has happened. And Peter explains that the Spirit has come down because Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and he has resurrected, he has ascended, and he has sent the Spirit. So all of what has happened is founded upon this truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and Messiah. Peter explains that this is the the foundational truth that you need to know. And then Luke writes about, here's how that truth impacted the people. Here's how they lived that out. They were people formed by Pentecost, formed by the Spirit, and formed by the truth of who Jesus Christ was. And now we have a depiction of, this is how they behaved. Here are their patterns of behavior. And I do think Luke is writing this section for us to show us this is what church ought to look like. He's giving us this picture of church as a template and a model for us. It doesn't mean the church is perfect. And we're going to find that out real quickly in the book of Acts. We'll see it all throughout the New Testament in Paul's letters. The church isn't perfect. It never was, even in the beginning. But... What Luke writes here 
is a model and a template for us of sort of the ideal shape and character of a church. This depiction of the church is a model for us to follow. So what I want to do today is ask two questions about this depiction of the church. First, what does a spirit-empowered church practice? This is a church empowered by the spirit, shaped by the truth of who Jesus Christ is. So we want to ask, what do they do? What does a spirit-empowered church practice? What were their practices? And then to close, we'll ask the second question. What does a spirit-empowered church produce? What is the outcome of their practice? What happens because of the practices of the church and God's favor upon them? What does a spirit-empowered church produce? First, we'll ask the question, what does a spirit-empowered church practice? And we'll find there are four answers to that question. And they're kind of given in a summary statement in verse 42. And some of you may make the connection. This is Acts 2.42, from which we get 242 groups, right? So this whole sermon could be seen as a plug for 242 groups, if you want to look at it that way. But that verse 42, that's kind of a summary statement of this is what the church did, and then the rest of the verses are kind of explaining how they did that. But the summary statement is found in verse 42, listing four practices. Let's look at those four practices. What does the Spirit-empowered church practice? First, verse 42, apostolic teaching. One of the practices of the church was to be devoted to apostolic teaching. Verse 42 says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And verse 43 backs that up and says, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That word there, devoted to, they were devoted, is important. They're saying this is not like an accidental thing that was unintentional. They were intentionally committed to these four practices, the first of which is apostolic teaching. They felt obligated to it. They set themselves upon these things. And that first is the teaching of the apostles. This is the heart of Christian community, the apostolic teaching. This is what formed and united the church, and this is true for all churches for all time, they are devoted to, if it is to be a true church, devoted to apostolic teaching. That is what bound them together, right? So they were not bound together because they had the same social relationships. They were not bound together because they were all of the same ethnic heritage, and that will be really true as we go forward in Acts, of people of all different backgrounds and stripes and uh, cultures and ethnicities will come together and what binds them together at the foundation, at the core of the church is a teaching. It's doctrine. We use that word as if it's a dirty word. Doctrine, oh, it sounds so cold. Dogmatic. But it is doctrine that is at the core of the church. It is the teaching of the apostles. What is that teaching of the apostles? Well, we know Jesus said before he was resurrected and ascended, before he was crucified, Jesus told his apostles, I'm going to depart, but the Holy Spirit will come and he'll bring to your mind and bring to your remembrance all the things I have taught you. And that's what happened. The Holy Spirit came and the same things that Jesus taught were brought to the mind of the apostles and they taught them as well. Apostolic teaching was just the continuation of Jesus' teaching. It's one and the same. They taught what Jesus taught. And how does Jesus commission the apostles, the disciples? He gives them the great commission. You're to go make disciples. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. 
So Jesus told his disciples, Matthew 28, you're going to go out and make disciples and you're going to do so by teaching. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So the commands of Jesus. Jesus' teaching, Jesus' commands, and Jesus himself was the core of the apostolic teaching, the gospel, the good news, that Jesus was the Messiah who God had sent, that Jesus was born to a virgin and lived and died on the cross for the sins of the world. He rose from their grave as king of this world, resurrected and ascended on high, bringing the kingdom in as the Messiah, the king of the kingdom, and anybody who wants to be part of his eternal kingdom can come through repentance and faith and believe in him, and you will have eternal life too. That gospel, that good news, that salvation is open to all through Jesus Christ, the King of the Kingdom, that was the core of the apostolic teaching, and that's what they continued to teach. Jesus himself, in Luke 4.43, said he came for the purpose of preaching and teaching the Kingdom of God, and the apostles had the same purpose. Right in line with Jesus, and proving they were in line with Jesus, they did the same miracles that Jesus did. Verse 43, many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles showing that they were in line with Jesus. They are devoted to teaching. Maybe that's obvious to us all. Maybe we just know that, we accept that. But I want to highlight that to remind us that doctrine, what we believe our confession of faith, scripture, the, the, the truths of Jesus Christ that we hold, those aren't peripheral to us. So we aren't a group of people who get along because we're friends and family, and that's what holds us together. And then, when it's agreeable, we think the same things. Actually, what holds us together as a people before our love for one another, is our union with each other through mutual faith, the doctrine that we are devoted to. And I would add, if any of our leaders, if your pastor departs from our doctrine, as much as you may or may not love that guy, get rid of him. And you as a church, we as a church, have an obligation together to hold to our doctrinal convictions. And should a pastor or anyone else seek to tear us apart from those, that person ought to be corrected or even potentially removed if they tear us away from the core truths of Jesus. Are you devoted to apostolic teaching? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you growing in your understanding of the teaching of Jesus Christ? How many of us learned the basic truths of the faith many years ago and then have just been coasting on that for a long time since? Do you have a hunger to search out the depths of who God is, knowing there's more for you to embrace, more for you to understand, not necessarily anything new or different from what you understood, but an expansion of it, going deeper into having a greater appreciation for the doctrine of God. One of my passions and my heart and my 
my hope for us as a church is that we would love and enjoy and embrace a further and better understanding of who God is and what he has done through Jesus Christ, that it might shape us. Let us not be lazy in our thinking or in our devotion to teaching, but to love it and grow in it and be devoted to it. Because that's what a spirit-empowered church will do. They'll be devoted to apostolic teaching. Then, second, we learn that the, the church wasn't just there studying books and then in isolation, just sitting in their study closets all by themselves. They were devoted to teaching, but they were also developed, or devoted to relationships. They were devoted to Christian fellowship. They were devoted to Christian fellowship, to fellowship in Christ. Verse 42 says, and they devoted themselves to the fellowship. And then verses 44 and 45 expand on that. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they were devoted to fellowship. They didn't just come, hear a sermon, and leave and never talk to other people in church again. Right? Church is about more than just learning the teaching. It is about being devoted to one another in relationship, in fellowship. Fellowship is one of those words we throw around a little bit maybe too flippantly. Fellowship isn't just two Christians who happen to be hanging out. So you'll have Super Bowl parties later maybe. That may or may not be fellowship just because two Christians are in the same room doesn't mean it's fellowship. But fellowship is more than that. It is a mutual bond and association um, for mutual encouragement, building up, partnership. Fellowship is one of those words that was used in other contexts in the ancient Greek world. Fellowship, that word is actually used to describe the marital union or business and trade partnerships when two people were bound together for a purpose. As a church, we're bound together for the purpose of growing in Christ. We have a fellowship. That fellowship actually comes from God himself through our union with him. 1 John 1.3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In the mystery of our salvation in Jesus, we have union with the Father and Son. And because we have union with God, we have union with one another. The fellowship. How is that fellowship expressed there in the church? What were their patterns of behavior? They had all things in common. What does that mean? It means they shared a common faith. It means they shared resources together. We've got to unpack that a little bit because there's a couple ways we could misunderstand this. This is not saying that they all brought all of their possessions and resources together and put it in a pool and then redistributed it so everybody had equal things. Right, this was not a 1960s hippie commune, right? And I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I'm also serious because I've seen this happen, and when it does, alarm bells should go off in your head saying, that's a cult. Whenever usually a leader or a group of leaders says, we're going to be like the New Testament church and have all things in common, which means give us all your resources and trust us, we'll distribute them and use them fairly. 
we'll all live together, have communal housing. Like, when that kind of thing happens, again, just be alarmed. Usually that means that's a cult, and that person who's wanting to take all those resources is not going to distribute them fairly. In fact, they're going to keep a lot for themselves. And people really have gotten truly hurt and truly abused by that kind of thing. So that's not what we're talking about. Nor are we talking about a communist kind of setup. Because you'll notice they owned their goods and possessions and they were not forced by another to give them away and redistribute them. All right, so this wasn't an authority coming in and saying you have to give up what you own and give it to one another. So it's not that kind of setup. Nor is it a, a greedy form of capitalism where everybody's goal is to amass all their wealth for themselves. And they're devoted in their lives to their career, to earnings. This is a Christian community. And what that means is they had their wealth, they had their goods and possessions, but they understood they were bound to one another. So if anybody else had need, they sacrificed. Not out of forced compulsion, but out of the generosity and conviction of their hearts, knowing they were bound together in love and freely gave up whatever they had so that somebody else could benefit. They ensured that there would be nobody needy, nobody poor among them. In their fellowship, no one would go hungry. It was a reflection of God's ideal for his kingdom and for his kingdom people. Deuteronomy 15, 4 and 5 says, speaking about what Israel is supposed to be like, it says, There will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. If Israel had been faithful to the Lord, they would have found no poor among them. And that is a picture of what the kingdom of God will be like. Nobody going hungry. Everybody having what they need. So we, as a church, are to be a reflection of that kingdom. That anybody who is among us will have their needs met. And I think I can say with confidence that if you are a part of this church, it would be impossible to go hungry. And like I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, we'll get to that actually. But I also say that truly, if you're a part of this community, somebody will help you. We raise funds for this. We take in benevolence offerings. We have budgets set aside to make sure that nobody amongst us goes needy. That's what the church is supposed to be like. It's a reflection of their fellowship together in obedience to the Lord. Their love motivated them to sacrificially invest in other members of the church. How was your investment with other members in the church? What are the tangible expressions of your fellowship with the body of Christ?
I won't apologize for the fact that this is one of my great concerns for us coming out of a couple years of pandemic, at times being forced to isolate, at times choosing to. My concern is that we would have an ongoing habit of isolation. That unwittingly we might have become used to comfortable with not sharing our lives with one another. It's easy to get into that habit. In fact, it's hard to invest in other people. It's really a lot easier to do things by yourself. It frees up more time. Fewer events in your calendar, fewer obligations to other people, more rest. You don't have people kind of all up in your business all the time and knowing things about you. Nobody critiquing you. And the further you are away from people, the fewer uncomfortable conversations you have to have. And sometimes people are awkward in the church. Nobody looking over your shoulder. Being around people can truly cause for many of us anxiety. And that can be difficult to overcome. And if you just privately stay away from people, you never have to have anybody critique you or correct you or point out what they see the Lord doing in your life or encourage you or tell you how they see your gifts being used and encourage you in the use of those gifts. Nobody to tell you how much you've grown in the Lord or help you discern your strengths and weaknesses. No context in which to use the gifts God's given you. Nobody correcting your mistakes or keeping you on the path away from hell. Nobody to impede you from becoming isolated and selfish and narcissistic. No one to lift your gaze off of yourself. That's the isolated life. It's not how the church is supposed to live. So whether in person or even for a time, electronically, You and I have an obligation before the Lord to invest in one another in fellowship because we need it. There's a reason the Spirit-empowered church naturally engages in Christian fellowship. It's the only way to follow the God that called us not to be just followers of Jesus in isolation, but part of a body, part of a holy people, part of a church and the bride that he loves. The third practice of Spirit-empowered church is closely tied with fellowship. It might surprise you. The third thing that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. They're devoted to communal meals. They were devoted to communal meals. Look at verse 42 and verse 46. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. In verse 46, and day by day, 
attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So notice, they were devoted to this breaking of bread. It didn't just happen from time to time. It was regular occurrence. They were devoted to it. And that phrase, breaking bread, comes from the Jewish tradition of before a meal, giving thanks to God, and the leader of the home would break bread and pass it around. And actually, we see Jesus doing this, right? Before he feeds the 5,000, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them, then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Thank God, broke bread. Where else does Jesus do this? The Last Supper. Thanks God, breaks bread. So that breaking bread is a sign of fellowship and unity together, that we are the same people. Uh, I think, in verse 42, when it talks about breaking bread, that includes the Lord's Supper, but is not exclusive to the Lord's Supper. That part of the expression of their breaking bread together was the meals that they would have together when they worshipped in communion. And those communion meals were meals. So I think this is in reference to that, but beyond that, they ate together regularly. I think Luke is talking about more than just the Lord's Supper. You see that in verse 46. Verse 46, the, the main point of this, ver- of this sentence, and the main verb actually here, is that they ate together and received and shared their food with gladness. And they did this both in the temple and in homes. So I think that means they, they, they broke bread together as part of their religious worship, and they, they broke bread together in their homes just as part of their ongoing life together. And I find this fascinating, that part of their communal devotion was to make sure that they ate together. What is it about food, the breaking of bread, that enforces this? I don't know, but, but again, we'll talk about the Super Bowl later. How many of you are doing things for the Super Bowl, having a Super Bowl party? How many of you are saying, we're not going to eat? Like, part of the planning of that hanging out and that festivity is, we're going to eat together. To not eat, that, that's sociopathic. <laughs> like, that's, not, that's weird. No, we, we come together, we eat together. Why? I'm not sure I fully know, but I know it's just the way God wired us. It's the way he ordained his religious festivals in the Old Testament. They were feasts, festivals. They ate together. The picture of the great union we will have with God in the end, what is it, how is it depicted? The marriage supper. There is something about eating together that physical act that unites people in hospitality and warmth and love and affection, there's just something to it. This was proven to me a few years ago when I was part of a church plant. I I think I saw how this works because I was part of a church plant and we met, before we met on Sunday mornings, we met midweek on Wednesday evenings. So we'd have midweek worship services just as we were getting the thing off the ground. And the leaders who were helping out with that or anybody serving or just anybody who wanted to come, we had, for a number of months, a meal together. We had dinner together on Wednesday nights, and then we had our service. And there was something that happened around the dinner table together as that core team just ate and talked and got to know one another. I am convinced that a necessary component of that church plant being successful was eating together regularly. So that I would advise, as we think about planning a church, whoever is on that team, put meals in the budget and don't make it a small budget line. And as you eat together, 
You will grow in affection and love one another, and you'll learn how to follow the Lord together. God does something through eating together. Like, I have a vision one day, and I don't know if anybody shares this vision, so it might just be me, of us doing this at CBC, together and in homes. Like, maybe we build out the basement, and we have midweek service where we do all the Awana things, and the youth, high school and middle school, and prayer service for the adults, and all the family could come in. Before we do all of that, we get together and have a meal as a church together. Wouldn't that be awesome? Now, some of you are thinking, that sounds like a lot of work and a lot of cost, and I'd say, yeah. But what would it produce? I was talking to uh, a friend of one of the members of our church, and he's a Jewish man, a couple of years ago, but I remember this. And they said, in their synagogue, on Saturdays, they do this every week. They have a meal together. I said, how do you possibly do that, like, for a whole group of people? And they said, well, they actually had a small group system similar to ours, and they rotated which small group was responsible for the meal, and they just made it work, and they did it. Just part of their liturgy. I thought, man, I think we could do that. That sounds like good and beneficial. So I'm, I'm laying that out there uh, for, for somebody else to organize and plan. <laughs> <laughs> but whether as a church or together in their homes in small groups, 242 groups, they ate together. Fourth, Spirit-empowered church practices regular prayer. Regular prayer, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the prayers. Then verse 46 says, And day by day, attending the temple together, they were worshiping, verse 47, praising God. So it speaks to their attitude of worshipful prayer. The early church was devoted to prayer. Now, I, I think that means ongoing, just individual prayer, but you'll notice it's worded specifically. It says they were devoted to the prayers. That is intentional wording. Isn't that interesting? The prayers. It wasn't just devoted to the concept of prayer, but they had, it seems, a set standard number of prayers or liturgy laid out. I think that's what that's pointing to. They're devoted to the prayers. Where did that liturgy come from? Well, they were worshiping in synagogue, the temple, and they were still Jewish. And from their Jewish worship, they had standard prayers that they used together. And you say, well, that doesn't sound very Christian to have, you know, Set liturgy and say, well, Jesus actually kind of taught us a set prayer, a standard prayer we would all use together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. They were devoted to the prayers. I I take that to mean liturgical set prayers that were used throughout the church life to teach people how to pray, so that when they went home and prayed by themselves, they would know these are the kinds of things that we as a church agree to pray over. These are important things to pray about. And corporate prayers, they have a way of shaping the church, teaching and forming, unifying. This is how we speak to God and go to him. We know we need to live lives of prayer because Jesus himself did it. We read throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus going away to private places early in the morning to devote himself to prayer. As he engaged in ministry, he would often pray to God as he was engaging in ministry before he called his disciples. Throughout, you see Jesus as a man of prayer, and if he needs prayer, I think we need prayer. 
And we need prayer as a church to guide us and shape us. Because the church isn't led by one individual's whims or one person's thoughts or one person's agenda. The church is led by a collective coming together and seeking the Lord and saying, what do you want us to do? How do we follow you? How do we do what you've called us to do? And we need prayer because we try, as a church collectively, to do impossible things together. Again, I'll go back to our campaign, our our fundraising project. We want to do impossible stuff. Coming out of all sorts of volatility and instability, we want to raise money to build out our basement. We want to raise money to plant a church. We want to raise money to save souls. And we also, you might not know this, but we're going on in the background of the church, we're trying to... um, inject a culture of meaningful discipleship. We are constantly, as a church, trying to do impossible things together that we could not do on our own. Chief amongst them, we are trying to bring people from death to life. So we absolutely have to be a people of prayer. And in fact, we'll talk to you about how we're going to make March a month of prayer at CBC. Because we need it. It's the only way we're going to follow God is by casting ourselves upon him. When we talk about prayer, often the thing we say is, and I say this too because it's true, I lack discipline to pray. That is true, but it's not truly the thing that we lack if we're struggling to pray. If we're struggling to pray, it means we lack desperation. Desperate people pray. I recently heard about a... Christian professor who made a comment. He said, I noticed something about Christian authors. The young ones write books about marriage and parenting. The older Christian authors write books on prayer. Something we learn as we go on in years. We desperately need the Lord. We're going to follow him. The church empowered by the Spirit, recognizes its need for the Lord and its need for regular prayer. Those are the four practices that we see in the church in the book of Acts. Now, shortly to close out, what did it produce? What does the Spirit-empowered church produce? Two things. First, favorable witness. The Spirit-empowered church produces favorable witness, verses 43 and 47, and awe came upon every soul. And 47 says, praising God and having favor with all the people. That's what happened. Awe came upon everyone, and they had favor with all the people. They were still interacting with the culture around them. They were visiting the temple. They were enmeshed in the lives of the Jewish people because they were Jewish people. So the church didn't immediately isolate, remove themselves from the world, and see how far they could get away. The church maintained interaction with the world such that everybody around them had an awe of what was going on. That word for awe could also be translated fear. That as people saw what was happening in the life of this church, they had a certain almost nervousness about it. What is going on there? It's a reverence as they saw the church convicted by this truth of who Jesus was, sharing their lives together, sacrificially loving one another, eating together, and praying, there was a a conviction that came on people around them that something different is happening. 
seeing the miracles that were produced by the apostles, the people had an awe. And the people had favor. And they had favor with the people. And we'll see. Pretty soon, that doesn't mean everybody's going to love them. The church will be persecuted. We'll see it in Acts. See it in the book of Revelation. But, even in the midst of that, there was a certain interest from those around them, from the world around them. They saw what was going on and were intrigued. Then they were drawn in, and that's the second thing that happens when the church practices these things. What does a spirit-empowered church produce? God-given growth. Verse 47, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Lord's at work in the church and people are added. In this kind of unique time in the history of the church, Pentecost comes and just in this large but one congregation, people are added daily and the number's going to hit 5,000 by the time we reach Acts 4.4. 5,000 men, so it's much bigger than that. But notice what it says. Just an interesting point. Those who are being saved are added to the church. God saves them, and they're added to the people of God. Meaning, when God saves people, he joins them to the body. They become part of the church, part of the fellowship. So I'm not saying that people are saved by inclusion in the church. They're saved by faith. But when people are saved, they're saved to the church. They could become part of God's people. And church father Cyprian said, no one can have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. When God saves people, he brings them into the fellowship of the church. And again, we'll see this all throughout Acts. We like to say often, do you have, you ask the question, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? It's a good question. I would add a second question. Do you have a communal relationship with Jesus. Not just a personal. But is your relationship with the Lord expressed communally? Being added to the church. And who does the adding? Of course it is the Lord. The church is faithful. The church observes these practices. But it is God who adds. It is up to him to save and to add to the church. So we can and we must plant, we can and we must water, but God gives the increase. So close, I'll just ask, do you want to see God add people to the church? Do you want to see church growth, people being built up, people being added? I think we have the key to it right here. And evangelicalism, we spend like tons of money on books and conferences and teachings on how to add people to the church and how to grow. And I think the answer's been staring us in the face for 2,000 years. And it's actually pretty simple. Teach Jesus Christ, serve one another sacrificially, 
Eat. Feed one another. Pray. It's pretty simple, as it turns out, this key to church growth. It's hard to do, though. It requires investment, and there's a cost to it. Time, money, energy, your whole life. So the question is, is the church worth it? Is the church worth your whole life's devotion? I'll ask it this way. Is the church worth laying your life down for? If we are to follow Jesus, the answer has to be yes. Because that is exactly what he has done. He gave up his life for this people. He died for his bride. It was worth investing everything for him. Is it worth it to us? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word, this depiction of what the church ought to look like. And I, and I thank you because as we look at it, we find it's truly not all that complicated. It's not all that hard to understand. It's simple. But it's difficult. So I pray that you would give us your spirit so that we might be this kind of church. And I thank you, Lord, and to the extent that we are this kind of church. And I see evidences of all these things all over our fellowship. And we praise you for that. That's not done by us. That's done by you, just by... Uh, the, the same way adding people to the church is your work, not something that we can manufacture. Or that growth is not something necessarily that we can take as a promise, that if we do these four steps, Lord, you will just give us numbers. That's not the case. But we do know that if we follow in this pattern, you will grow us because you are faithful and your spirit will do your work through us. So we pray, Lord, that you would enable us and strengthen us to follow you faithfully to love one another sacrificially, and to worship your Son. And Lord, as we do that, we leave growth in your sovereign and capable hands, trusting you. We thank you, Lord, for this group of people that you love and we love. Amen.